Hello, Legends. Before we get into the episode, I just want to quickly tell you about a brand new show that I have just released. It's called Crime at Bedtime. And as the name suggests, it's been designed with those in mind who like to go to sleep at night listening to a fascinating true crime story. We'll release a brand new episode every single Monday, but right now there is a stack of episodes for you to binge straight away. So go check it out. It's called Crime at Bedtime. It's available wherever you get your podcasts from. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. If that really took place, that's just Is that an instant absolutely- dismissal? It's a mistrial in any jurisdiction in the world. You're never going to say that ever in your life. Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. Recently, we just wrapped up the story of the Kane brothers, Jeremy and Zachary Kane, who are about to hit the milestone of 23 years incarcerated after the death of a man by the name of Jimmy Hill. It's a crime they've always maintained was self-defence. And like with every one of our cases, once we wrap them up, I like to get the opinion of the man they call the voice of reason. Here he is. How are you, buddy? We're, we're almost matching in our attire, know, which what, is scary. White T-shirt crew. That's right. We've been together so long now, Mr. Leonard. We're dressing alike. How wonderful. Yeah, <laughs> I, I knew it in advance without even asking. I didn't have to send you the email about no, what you're going to What are wear we wearing? Today. Yeah, absolutely. Happy New Year and all that jazz to you, sir. I trust it was a good one for you. You know, off in Amsterdam, hopefully not overly uh, indulging in local delicacies, I hope. <laughs> No, we were with the kids. We did. Uh, we got to go to Paris for four days in Amsterdam. Michael Paris, Leonard so. is OMR's attorney at law and a man with decades of trial experience as a defence attorney in Chicago, Illinois. New year, same work to do. Uh, and, uh, you know, we are, we've got a stack of new cases for the, for the new year. But before we go into new cases, we've got to wrap up 2023 uh, with our case of the Kane brothers. Of course, the two gentlemen, well, three were actually who were convicted, one of which was, uh, was released after three years, but two of the boys still in prison over 20 years later for a crime that they said was self-defence. My name is Jeremy Kane. My name is uh, Zachary Kane. I was convicted of murder at the age of 15. Um, I was convicted of murder. The crime happened in 2001. I was 16. And sentenced to 35 years, and I've done 21 years on that 35 years now. 
you know, grabbed my sh my shirt and brought me in and stuck his tongue all the way in my mouth and I could feel it in the roof of it, you know, and then he, he tripped me. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm like in the air and I land like in the fetal position in a way. F you, F you this, and he come at me like he was fixing to hit me with this landscaping timber. When he did, I took a short jab to his left leg and all it did was piss him off. And he ran back to hit me and I hit him one time in the shoulder. He took one step back and I took off running. My brother went to help my friend up and the dude came at my brother and I hit him in the head. I didn't mean to kill him. You know what I'm saying? I didn't mean to do it. Um, as always, let's get your first initial thoughts on, on what you've heard. Well, just first of all, based upon their youth and, and the whole set of circumstances, including the actions of the victim, not, not only on that day, but prior to that, it's just a tragedy on just so many different levels. As you as you have delved into, you know, so we can, we can go more depth, but just as such a sad case at, at so for so many different reasons, you know. We've covered a self defense case before, and as we've spoken about, self defense cases are always tricky um, in uh, proving self defense. Number one, you know, regardless of of the crime, we got to take into serious context the age of these kids. You know, 15, 16 year old kids. In any case, that's a huge factor. You know, their their brain development, their impulsivity, their ex life experience, their response to stress and threats is, is quite different than how an adult would act. And I hope later on in this episode I can read something to you because I've been I've been dealing with this issue in another case that doesn't involve self-defense, but involves a youthful offender. And and there really is a kind of a growing consensus from a scientific standpoint, uh, from a neuroscience standpoint, that kids and youthful offenders, people really up until below 25, need to be treated in a different way because of the, the brain differences and the lack of brain development at those ages. So we'll get into that in a minute. It's just straight away, having those kids in that situation and then going to their parents, because they're kids and that's what kids do when they're in over their heads with something. You go to mom and dad and go, help. And mum and dad went straight away, well, let's go to the police station uh, and we'll sort this mess out. Because obviously they didn't realise yeah. at that time that this guy um, was going was gonna to pass away. Yeah, their, their actions after the event are kind of telling and indicative of their age and their lack of maturity. I mean, for, for your listening audience, as we've discussed before, you know, in self-defence, you know, you got to kind of look at what is a reasonable use of force in response to the threat. And that, that's a problem in this case uh, because a lot of jurors are going to say, okay, I get it. Um, Hill is a bad guy. He said some horrible things to these kids. He clearly was threatening them. Uh, the question is, was their response, was their own use of force, was it measured enough or was it excessive in light of the force or in light of the threat that they faced, right? And then you get into this whole issue of, you know, some people saying he was armed with the with the big four by four or not, and clearly, if he is armed with the four by four, is that what you're calling it? The big big piece, yeah, of yeah, big had? a bit a bit of lumber, yeah, yeah, yeah. So clearly, if he had that, and if he was using that in a menacing fashion, I mean, there, there seems to be universal agreement that he made the very lewd sexual comments to them, that he was essentially challenging them to hit him to strike him. And, you know, questioning their manhood 
And again, he's relying upon their youthful nature, right? And he's trying to goad them into doing something. And unfortunately, he did goad them into doing something. Uh, but the other part of it is if he did have the four by four and he's not only sexually, uh, you know, attacking them with his with his with his words, but then he's also, you know, using the four by four in a menacing way. Clearly, there's an argument that they were able to use force in response to his potential or threatened use of force of the four by four. Also, if we look at the boys account, let's say that what the boys are telling us is 100 percent factual. Um, you know, that this that they drove down that street, this Jimmy Hill came out of his house. He's gone towards them. He's picked up this piece of lumber. He's made threatening comments towards them, as we know, lewd comments towards them. But they also say not only that. Uh, Mark Harper is grabbed by this guy. He spits in his mouth. He says that he licked him in his mouth and then threw him to his threw him to the ground. So if that is a hundred percent the way it happened, you've got to then work out whether the force that they gave back to Mister Hill was warranted. Um, Correct. You know, is is their use of force, which was in this case arguably use of deadly force or attempted deadly force, was that reasonable under the circumstances? And and they didn't have to wait for him to strike him with a four by four. But um, clearly if he's just holding it or, you know, lording it over their heads or whatever, they, it becomes a factual question whether, you know, really whether that's sufficient then to hit him. So it really becomes a very factual intensive case about, you know, what did he do with the board? You don't have to wait for him to strike you with it. But then the question is, is your response to that threat of that four by four and the way he's, you know, using it towards the boys is their response then reasonable. And, and I think that clearly then you got to take into account their age, their maturity, the difference in sizes, all that sort of stuff. Right. And I'm not sure to what extent a good job was done at that a trial. I don't have, you know, the benefit of the transcripts. I have excerpts from what you have talked about, but you know, clearly that's how you want to present it. And you want to present it that, you know, we got this guy who's has a history of violence has a history of violence towards at least one of these participants. Um, he's substantially older, of course. He knows exactly what he's doing. He not only is making sexual threats, but he's made physical contact with them. And then he's got this board. So all that context, you know, goes into this question of whether it was self-defense or not. And then you got to you really do have to take into account the mindset of a 15, 16 year old kid. And that, that to me, that's huge in this case. And um, I did want to, if you can let me do a little legalistic on you, Jack, I want to read one thing, one thing to you, if I could, because I think it's indicative of where we are now in the courts, or at least we're trying to start to get there. Uh, But we weren't there at the time of this case. But this is from a, a quotation from a recent federal case. The prevailing neuroscientific explanation for adolescence immaturity begins with the fact that the frontal lobes, home to the key components of the neural circuitry underlying executive functions such as planning, working memory, and impulse control, are among the last areas of the brain to mature. They may not be fully developed until halfway through the third decade of life. Children's brains have a proliferation of neural connections, then, beginning around age 11 to 12, Rarely used connections are selectively pruned, making the brain more efficient. This increase in efficiency progresses from the back to the front of the brain. Evidence suggests that in the prefrontal cortex, the area responsible for executive functions, 
The process is not complete until the early 20s or later. And it concludes by saying, when sentencing adolescent offenders, court should bear in mind adolescent maturity gap. And what this court and other courts, including the United States Supreme Court, have been talking about is there's this huge difference between the brain development of a 15, 16-year-old kid versus an adult. And it not only applies to a sentencing decision, but also to a charging decision by a prosecutor. It applies to whether someone should be in juvenile court versus adult court. It applies to the concept of self-defense. So I kind of wish that they had the benefit of this kind of line of case law has that has been kind of more quickly developing recently that really wasn't around at the time of this offense. Are you saying that there's uh, there seems to be more of a movement now in the states to look at young offenders differently? Because as we know, you know, there's still many states that try youngsters as adults, as these boys were, um, which can see kids getting life sentences or at least, you know, 30 plus years in prison. No doubt. I mean, there's no doubt a movement to look at them differently. However, you're right. In 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 our in our system, which is kind of weird, if you're in Australia and thinking about the system in the United States, most of a if you look at the statistically the percentage of criminal cases in state courts across the country versus federal courts, it's probably eighty percent that are in state courts versus twenty percent in in federal court. Maybe a little different. So that what that means is you have fifty different states in our nation all with their own different criminal justice procedures, rules, and case law, right? Which therefore means there's vast differences state by state. Some states and the judges and the appellate courts in those states could care less about what I just told you, what I just read to you. But there certainly is a line in the federal cases, which is recognized in this vast difference between youthful offenders and adults. And it's certainly applicable across the board to state courts too. It's really, it's really more of a neuroscientific slash constitutional argument, right? Um, but we're, we're certainly still not there in our court system in terms of how we treat juveniles and how we treat adults. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. So, I mean, going back to, to this particular case itself, I mean, all these boys were tried for intentional murder. It's a big call to say it's intentional murder. I mean, you know, I've said to the boys, I mean, the most I can see this is... Zachary was the one that swung and hit and killed Mr. Hill. He openly admits that. He swung, he hit, and he killed him. But he says, I didn't mean to do it. I didn't. I wasn't trying to kill him. It was an accident. I was trying to stop him from attacking my brother and Mark. I swung my bat, I hit him, he died. I mean, all three of them getting charged with intentional murder is just seems just, you know... It makes no sense. Number one, that the prosecutors would charge it in that manner. And then number two that the jury would find that that really was the offense that that fit here, right? I'm assuming they're charged in multiple counts, and certainly there were lesser counts than this. And it's hard to imagine a jury believing that this is intentional murder. You know, there there are some bad facts uh, that relate to the circumstances. For instance, the fact that they went there, you know, sort of looking for them, at least in some people's mind, not, not all those boys. But that, that's bad and part of the narrative, but they didn't go there um, certainly as a group to go kill him, right? But the idea that this was intentional premeditated murder to me is absolutely absurd. I mean, they, the boys put themselves in a bad situation and they did so because of their immaturity and their age and they didn't all want to be there. That's for, that's for sure. Uh, but then it's, it was the escalation of all these events, you know, Hill's actions are a huge part of this. And we're not blaming the victim, no. but we're putting those facts in the context. You know, in the the Hill history here is really sort of pathetic. You know, before this offense, a grown man, you know, getting involved in beating up kids or getting into their squabbles is just ridiculous. And then the fact that he was, again, on this occasion, and again, where no one's claiming he should die or deserve to die, but the fact that the way he acted towards these boys uh, and sort of seemingly kind of relished the fact that there was this confrontation and the things that he said to him and apparently was willing to do to them are, are sort of are not sort of, but are very pathetic. Again, we're not saying it merits him dying, but, you know, if you're on the jury and if you're the defense lawyer, you're certainly going to want to emphasize those facts. Also, you've got to look at, you know, someone's prior histories we've already spoken about. Again, as we will continue to say, this doesn't mean that the man deserved to die whatsoever. The prosecution, the whole way through, are painting Mr. Hill as a family man. Uh, he was a businessman, a upstanding member of the community. This is also how he's portrayed in the media. You know, I read many an article written on this case about how this lovely um, grocer from the area was beaten to death by these boys. You know, that narrative was pushed and sold in the, to the jury, to the public, to everybody, that these boys beat to death a loving family man. Now, once you look at Mr. Hill's past record of abuse against pa- past partners, you know, this is all on record, it's all in police reports, you know, being abusive to partners, pulling a gun uh, and threatening someone with a gun, 
you know, they then to then for the prosecution to sell this as a man who was trying to de-escalate the situation and who was trying to just tell the boys to just leave his stepson alone, uh, and then he was beaten to death. You know, it's you. You've got to look at this and go. It does not seem like a man who would have been de-escalating this situation. Yeah, and even the homeowner, the gentleman, is a Gillian. I mean, he he yeah. corroborates that. I mean, yeah. you know, we have a lot to say about him too, but even he. The way he portrays this is this guy Hill is, is making these, you know, not only sexual remarks, but he's essentially challenging their manhood in terms of their willingness to hit him. And of course, in any self-defense case, typically pre-trial, there's going to be motion practice with regard to what evidence is going to be allowed about the victim in terms of their prior acts of violence. And I hopefully I assume that the defense in this case attempted to get Admit, admitted in evidence um, through some mechanism, through some witnesses, um, some of the prior bad acts of Mr. Hill, because they 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 bore, in this case, directly upon his conduct in this case. And in fact, his prior conduct related directly to one of the people involved in, her, his, in terms of Hill's prior acts of violence. So, um, and I think, you know, what you're pointing out is, is also true. This is powerful narrative that was created in I don't know what what's the size of the town, Jack. Now, Alabama, where this occurred. Oh, it's small. Yeah, very very small country town situation. Everybody knows everyone type setup. Yeah, so you can you can imagine, and and the way you portrayed in your early episodes is the hills, you know, who who owned the grocery store were relatively you know prominent, or at least everyone knew them in the town. Uh, I'm sure they knew a lot about Mr. Hill too. But then to have a narrative in a small town sort of be the story of how this happened. And that being the narrative that people are operating by would then make it difficult uh, in that jury pool drawn from that small community to kind of put that out of their minds. If they've been hearing for months or for a year, gee, this is how this poor this poor guy got it. This is how it went down. And that's the if that was the narrative in the town that will make it certainly difficult for the jury to separate that. So uh, let's talk about witnesses or eyewitnesses. I mean, obviously we mentioned Gillian there, Mr. Paul Gillian, who was the neighbour who lived opposite when all this went down. Um, you know, I think what was most troubling to me was how often and how much his statement not only grew but changes over time. You know, I talk about his very first initial statement at the scene was literally two sentences long um, and then half an hour later when the boys turn up at the police station, the detective, the police officer drives out there, brings him back, He's shown the boys. There's no lineup. He's just shown the boys. Is this, you know, who did it? Yep. And then he explains who hit who. He's talking about Jeremy as the one that hit him. And this didn't see Zach if he'd hit anyone. Mark, I don't recognize him at all. He may have been the guy sitting in the truck. Then when we come to um, Zach's um, juvenile hearing where they're going to work out whether he's tried it as an adult or a juvenile, you know, again, it changes. Now Zachary's the one that um, hit Mr. Hill multiple times. And then we get to the main trial and we take away any names at all. Uh, we're now not saying who hit who. In fact, he even says, I don't know who hit who on the stand. I mean, it's just, you've got to look at that and go, well, hold on a second. There is so many holes in this apparent key witness that, you know, it's he's a sieve. You know, no doubt. And I, what, what was interesting as I was listening was that admission that he made a trial. Jack, you did a great job of reading from the transcript as Thank you're you for much. one of the lawyers. I think you... Yeah. You have this bug that you really want to be a lawyer. We'll talk about that in yeah, another great. show. But Fantastic. You were reading from the transcript very artfully, but the one of the, one of the key admissions that defense counsel got on cross-examination of him at trial was the fact that ultimately 
he did sort of throw up his hands on cross-examination and say, I don't know who hit who. Huge. Right? That should be huge. It, that was enormous and almost almost enormous enough that you think it would be part of the motion for judgment of acquittal, meaning that in any case in America, after the prosecution rests, you can make a motion to, to for acquittal saying, look, the government hasn't proved their case beyond a reasonable doubt. I hope defense counsel raised that issue because he's really the only person testifying to what happened. And he's telling the jury, I don't know what happened. So on that alone, there'd be a, a heck of a nice basis for a motion for acquittal at that point of the trial that, look, they presented one witness about what happened. I guess we're, we're we'll have to talk about the other kid who did testify. Yeah. Uh, so that's a problem. But the fact that Gillian sort of X'd himself out by that admission that he don't he didn't know what happened. Um, what was more troubling, though, Jack, was the post-conviction audio videotape work by the family yeah. where they talked to Gillian and he made an enormous admission. And I thought he made it really without them necessarily prompting it or putting it in their head. He said a four by four yeah. or whatever the big piece of wood. Yeah. Did you see him with the landscape timber too, or was that already gone? Um, no, it was already gone. He had a landscape timber when he came down the road. Yeah, he Look, it looks like four by four. <laughs> yeah, I heard. But then they went back. The police couldn't find it. And they didn't. They didn't put those words in his mouth. Mm. You know, so he said that himself, which was enormous. Um, and I, I, I don't understand how that never came out before. He certainly never said it to, in any of his statements. He never said it at trial. But that is one of the biggest pieces here. Unfortunately, there's not much you can really do about it at this stage, right? Uh, but that was unbelievable, an unbelievable piece of, of evidence admission. And, you know, you, you, I want, as I was listening, I wanted them to get that in affidavit immediately. <laughs> yeah, but, of course, <laughs> but of course the wife shut them down yeah, the next day. Yeah. Very quickly. <laughs> I mean, and, and also to, to, you know, on the, on the steps as they're leaving, he says, you know, I, I want to do anything I can to help them. I, I mean, I don't want to perjure myself. I thought that was a weird statement. I, I didn't necessarily take it the same way you did. I mean, okay. I think I, I, I read it to him. I read it as him saying, look, I'll do anything to help you, which, of course, this happens a lot where someone's convicted. They're in jail for a long time. The witness all of a sudden sees the consequences of their actions. And Feels even bad. if they told the truth, they still they still want to help. They feel horrible. Yeah, right. Yeah, you know, yeah. in some way, he feels horrible about these kids, even though he helped send them away. Yeah. But I I, I viewed it as him saying, look, I'll do anything to help. But I'm not going to lie. Yeah. What I already said. Yeah. Which would actually be telling the truth, yeah, yeah. but it would be viewed by the prosecutors as perjury is the problem. Sure. And and I felt I felt like in Gillian's in Gillian's um presentation of the facts, particularly at trial, you know, th- there was this effort to sort of make himself a hero. You know, like, gee, I saw this, mm. I was gonna go out there and stop it. Mm. And, you know, I, I had a gun, I was gonna put an end to this. It, it was, seemed to me not only did his story grow. But he was definitely attempting to portray himself in a light that I don't think was consistent with what really happened, because a lot of people were probably questioning, hey, why didn't you do anything? You know, if, you, mm-hmm. if this big fight was going on on your lawn, why didn't you do anything? So I think he kind of came up with this narrative to make himself look better, like he was trying to be a hero, mm-hmm. but, you know, had had fell or something like that. But I felt like he was really trying to, so to speak, gild the lily and put himself in a better light to maybe help explain why he 
the Hills Rescue or, or done anything, quite frankly. Well, let's talk about the other only real uh, witness, although, and it, you know, it's a, it's quite a, a damning one for, for the defence, is, uh, you know, this other young gentleman who was with the boys at the time, didn't get out of the truck at all, just sat in the truck. But he was initially arrested as well as the other boys for intentional murder. And, I mean, he had, didn't even step out of the car, which is in itself is crazy how he was even charged with anything at all. Um, you know, everyone said that he never got out of the car. Everyone involved had always said he never even got out of that vehicle. It's almost like it was used as leverage to say, you're going to go to prison for a long time if you don't help us with this one. Oh, there's no doubt. You hit the you hit the nail on the head. I mean, when you think about him, he had really no criminal culpability. I mean, obviously the prosecutor could, could wave over his head and talk to his attorney and say, gee, we're going to charge him too because they all went there intentionally and they knew what they were going to do. The fact that he stayed in the car, you know, kind of like almost like a felony murder type. Yeah, of, I was going to uh, say it sounded felony theory. murder. Yeah. But 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 look, the case against him was was a nothing burger, right? They had they had nothing on this kid. And obviously him in connection probably with his own parents and his counsel was like, hey, yeah, if we can if we can get a walk here, we'll cooperate we'll cooperate all day long. If if I don't get charged and there's no danger of me going to prison, you know, why why wouldn't I cooperate? Which is unfortunate, uh, because there there was no reason for him to be giving any statements to anybody. Uh, because they didn't need to. And and there's clearly was a leverage play by the state to say that, look, look, kid, you're going to go down too, which there was, there was really no basis to charge him. Uh, but clearly they scared him and his counsel into getting him to cooperate. And I think his testimony probably as opposed to Gillian was way more damning because mm. he's one of the kids Yeah, was there. He watched it all. So I think that was probably more persuasive to the jury than anything. And that's probably what sunk these kids. Looking at their situation now, you know, over 20 years later, still in prison, they've been denied every single parole that they've gone for. Um, you know, they're, they're both in facilities where they have jobs outside of the prison during the day. They're both entrusted to drive vans and be out in the public during the day. And so, so they're saying, we trust you enough to allow you out of the prison to drive these vans, to drop off people at work, sit out in the, amongst the public, but we're not actually going to let you out of prison on parole. Yeah, how stupid is that? <laughs> so I mean, stupid. Come on. I mean, th- there's, there are these kind of what we call legitimate aims of sentencing in the United States, just like anywhere else, like, you know, deterrence, and, you know, giving someone a just punishment, a, punish, a punishment that's crime, rehabilitation. But <clears> the, the problem is once you just tack on, you know, in, in my view, it's at this point gratuitous, another decade, another decade, you're not furthering any legitimate aim of sentencing. You're acknowledging already by the fact you can put these kids back into the community to 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 do work for free and be in part of the community that certainly they're ready to be back in society. And it's got to be such a double-edged sword for these kids. On the one hand, I can't imagine the joy they must feel of not sitting in a cell and being able to get out there, Mm. you know, five days a week until the weekend and actually be out a part of humanity, but yet be so foreclosed from being part of that humanity. It's got to be just a killer, but I think better than sitting in the cell. Wow. You know, I'm allowed to be out here, but just as a spectator in the van, I see society all around me. I see the world. I can't can't be part of it. Now I got to go back to my cell. It's got to be horrible. 
What do you think would help these boys get out now? I mean, would it take one of these eyewitnesses coming forward and signing an affidavit to say that it wasn't true what they said um, and that they were co- potentially coerced by the prosecution, especially looking at this youngster at the time? Would any of that help or is it a case of they've just got to hope for parole now? Yeah, I think what you just said in terms of someone come forward, I, I think that's unfortunately entirely unrealistic. Yeah. Um, you know, Gillian would literally have to say not only – did I get it wrong? But, you know, someone told me to do that, which I don't necessarily believe. I, I don't know, but it, it's not necessarily the case that anyone told him to testify a certain way. Um, clearly his story developed. I mean, his early interview was so brief that I don't have a big issue. Why it would be so um, generic clearly when they talked to him again and they got a detailed statement, then that is a legitimate statement, which then was, um, clearly not the one he told at trial. So there, there's huge problems with his testimony, but they're never going to get anywhere by, first of all, he's not going to come forward and change his testimony. No. But even if he did, I don't think that's enough because you have another eyewitness, the kid, who's saying, here's how it happened. So any appellate court would say, it doesn't matter. You know, Even if you take Gillian's thing away, you still have a, a substantial basis for the conviction. So I don't think that's going anywhere. Um, I think it would take parole. I think it would take maybe revisiting through emotion or otherwise, you know, more of the recent case law that talks about, you know, the difference between the adults and kids and the neuroscience developments that the courts have recognized, including the United States Supreme Court, something like that. But if, if you're, if you're accurately uh, reciting, you know, the, the ability to get parole in Alabama, then it sounds, it sounds sadly like it's a, it's a, a long shot here, but uh, it, it's hard to believe that, they believe it's necessary to continue to incarcerate these kids when they'll let them go out and work in the community. It's just absurd. The, the one the one aha moment that I heard, I just heard it today because I listened to episode eight today, mm. was this this issue about prosecutorial misconduct. If he really if he really said in his closing argument that, gee, um, you have to believe the witnesses about how this happened because if it was any different, defendants would have got on the stand and told you what really happened. I mean, if that really took place, that's just- Is that an instant dismissal? It's a mistrial in any jurisdiction in the world, right? right. You know, the defendants have an absolute right not to testify. For a prosecutor to comment on that, that's kind of like prosecutorial school 101. If you're teaching any group of prosecutors around the country, a new group, an old group, about the mistakes you cannot make, that's one. That's literally a number one. You're never going to say that ever in your life. So if that was really uttered, that should have been a mistrial right there. Well, that's interesting because, you know, um, Jeremy says that when he said, because he said we wouldn't have even paid any attention to that, but apparently all the whole sort of courtroom went a bit crazy and their attorney sort of jumped up and were like, you know, objecting and all the rest of it. And there was a big discussion had at the bench. Once they actually went back on that, and went to look in the trial transcripts. There was nothing in the trial transcripts of that being mentioned. Um, and he said that their attorneys came back and said, "Oh no, we were we were uh, we got it wrong. We were confused, or we 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 misheard, or." Well, yeah, but the, but there's yeah, there's a huge difference between what the transcript says and what the audio said. Was there any audio from that trial? Uh, I'll have to check with Jeremy when I speak to him. Yeah, I mean that's and I don't know if it would exist today, but yeah. most trials in America, you know, the court reporter is not only typing. But it's also being recorded because oh. it's a huge benefit to them right. when they're typing. Yeah, to actually go back. Later, yeah. To go back to the audio 
and there's different rules about how long they keep the audio, who keeps possession of the audio. But the audio would clearly give the answer. Yeah, the problem is if you go to the transcript and it's not there, you got nothing to argue. You can't tell an appellate court yeah. that something was that's not there mm. unless everyone agrees that it should have been in there, yeah. which is not going to happen. But that was when I heard that today, I was like, oh, my God, that's 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 like an aha moment. Right. Yeah, that right. should have been a basis for mistrial right there. The issue with that was the lawyers objected immediately. You made a big deal about it, signed affidavits and stuff saying they heard it. The whole courtroom heard it. And then when they get the transcript, it's not in there. He asked if there was any audio um, transcripts done because he said usually when they're doing the transcripts, they also they don't just type them up. They also do an audio recording. Right. They did do an audio recording, but they would not let us get the audio recording. The judge wouldn't give it to us. And the attorneys were supposed to have went and listened to the audio said that they were mistaken but literally every person in the courtroom heard it and there was a lot of people in the courtroom we never were able to get that recording The good news is that um, the community of Pleasant Grove where this all happened have uh, really jumped on board. They've all um, heard, well, they are starting to all hear the podcast and um, there's now a podcast, there's now a Facebook page that's been set up by a lady from the community saying free the canes and a lot of people jumping on and saying that, um, you know, what they were told when they were younger was was lies and um, they cannot believe all this information that they weren't aware of and all the rest of it. So there's a bit of a movement happening within that community now to, um, to push to get at least get these boys parole. We will uh, continue to see what happens with this one over, you know, the coming months. And, you know, I think the boys are optimistic now that at least the community are getting behind them and um, hopefully making some noise and it might uh, get a bit of attention. So fingers crossed uh, it'll get looked at for at least parole. We're looking at we really need the Jack Lawrence effect. That's what we need, Jack. But I I do want to close with a question for you. Oh, here we go. I'm puzzled by this. It's always always a cultural thing, you know, for me. Yeah. in Australia, do you have anything attuned to the American Sloppy Joe sandwich? Is there any such thing? What's the you don't know what I'm talking about? No. I, I, no I, I've heard of it, but I, I couldn't tell you what it is. So in America, you could literally go to any place in America, the smallest town, the biggest city, from Alaska to Maine to Florida, and everyone would know what a Sloppy Joe sandwich is, which is simply ground beef, throwing some tomato sauce, and this little packet of seasoning called like Sloppy Joe seasoning. And then you serve it on a bun. And so I want to know, do the Aussies have anything that's similar to that great, but yet some people would say horrible sandwich in America? Look, I'll be honest, it doesn't sound great. Um, we, <laughs> there's nothing that sounds that horrendous that we get served in this country. I mean, there's plenty of bad stuff. Don't worry about that. But I mean. Oh, but it's, it's really, they, don't get I'm me sure wrong. it's, it's delicious. Very, I'm sure it's delicious. Mean, it's very tasty, but yeah. it's, 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 a low, it's a low budget thing, but it, it is amazing. Well, I look forward to on my trip to America being uh, taken by yourself somewhere for a, a decent sloppy Joe's. Oh, Jack, I will definitely <laughs> bring out the $5 bill for that for you, buddy. <laughs> oh, you're a good man. Just before we go, Tony Duke, the Michigan Innocence Clinic, run out of the Michigan University, have taken on his case to look at. Um, and apparently the Michigan Integrity Unit is also going to be looking into his case. Oh, my God. That's awesome. I, I like the fact Not of course, number one, that the, the innocence people are on it. That's awesome. Uh, but the fact that the Integrity Unit is actually taking, if they're taking a legitimate look at it. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? A legitimate look. But, well, you know, it's, it's something. Yeah, that's the question. Is it going to be a legitimate look? I mean, there's probably a lot of pressure, I hope, because of all the, in all the, you know, publicness you've brought to it, but if they're going to take a legitimate look at it 
and their legitimate prosecutors look into this case, you know, a couple decades later, how could you not conclude that there's something absolutely wrong with that case? So I, I hope it certainly happens. But again, we're looking for the Jack Lawrence effect. Well, we can but try, Mr. Leonard. As always, it's an absolute pleasure to uh, sit down with you on this case and we will talk to you after our next one, uh, which is Stephen Lawrence, the uh, son who was sentenced to life without parole for killing his father in a house fire, which is a fascinating story in itself. So we will uh, we'll look into that one next time. Can't wait to jump in, Jack. Great to see you. Take care, buddy. See you, mate. Thank you. Right, bye-bye. You have one minute remaining. As always, I want to say a huge thank you to Michael Leonard for giving up his valuable time to sit down with me and discuss these cases and give his opinion. And we will, of course, catch up with him after our next story. One Minute Remaining is a Mashed Pumpkin production, created, hosted and produced by Jack Lawrence. Audio and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans of ESA. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.